Welcome back to Podcast 34 of 2022. I'm your host, Kiev O'Neill. You can follow me on Twitter at OBKiev. Follow us the Osbreakers. Follow us on social media slash the Osbreakers. This episode is being brought to you by MyBookie.ag. For a 50% sign-up bonus, please visit MyBookie. Use the promo code the Osbreakers. Terms, conditions, location, apply. If you'd like to help us out with the cost response to the website, the podcast, we'd love to help you out. Please visit theosbreakers.com. Click shop and become a member. Pick any of our winning handicappers to get their premium plays before the line moves. You can also sponsor us on patron.com. And if nothing else, please visit the Ozbreakers and become a free picks newsletter subscriber. We have a great show for you today. I'm going to cover something that hasn't been talked about yet in many of the shows or podcasts around the nation, and that's college football. That's right going to talk a little college football. Now, do we have a ton of information about college football? (laughs) I mean, as much as we can get from returning production and transfer portal, and that's what I'm going to focus on, but there's going to be no betting plays. I already gave one out last week for college football. I'm going to be talking basically just about the teams that benefited so far from the transfer portal and I'm going to talk about the top 10 teams that return the most production, according to Bill Conley of ESPN, as well as the bottom 10 teams that return the least amount of production and how we should view those teams, right? If maybe it's a bad recruiting team, right? You're going to want returning production. And if it's a very good returning recruiting team, you're not going to be as worried about not returning as much production. Just going to kind of talk about the top 10 and the bottom 10 teams, kind of like the outliers, and tell you my thoughts on how we should approach them coming into the season. So I think that could benefit you a little bit in your college football prep. And so I'm excited to talk about that because college football is one of my top sports. But I'm also going to talk about the UFC coming up this weekend UFC Vegas 54. Going to cover the main event and a couple plays that I will be giving out to you and my overall thoughts about the card. But before we get into all that, I just want to let everybody know that the NFL schedule is coming out Thursday. I'm going to dive into that as deep as possible and then talk about it coming next week in our podcast. The podcast is going to come out early next week, possibly on Tuesday even, because I am actually going on vacation. I'm heading out to Cabo on Wednesday for five or six days to hang out with the wife and some of her friends for a 40th birthday. I'm real excited to do that. Going to try my hat at deep sea fishing, see if uh, maybe I can catch a big one. (laughs) If so, I will tweet it out for you guys. Um, But deep sea fishing is definitely one of my uh, go-to things whenever I hit the ocean. So uh, be on lookout for the podcast coming out early. And if I get really ahead of things, I might even have a preview for one of the NFL divisions. I'd like to get into that as soon as the schedules come out so I can hit those season win totals as early as possible and then give you some plays, obviously, as early as possible. So that will be the schedule anyways, but I want to recap 
a little bit about last weekend for me. I had a bad weekend of sports betting. UFC, the Dumont fight really did not go my way. And the Rose Namajunas fight could have put us easily into the black and absolutely destroyed us, putting us farther into the red than I thought. Uh, Then the main event we did hit Charles Oliveira under the two and a half. That was easy. (laughs) He made KG look like an amateur fighter with how quickly he rear naked choked Justin Gaethje, but Rose Namajunas went into this fight and completely dogged it. Her whole strategy was staying away from Carla Esparza, and it ended up costing her the fight. I was screaming at the TV, asking, what are you doing, Rose? I, you know, you have the the size, you have the arm's length, right? You have the reach, is what I'm trying to say. You have the uh, striking ability over Carla. You're just a little bit afraid of her takedowns, yet you didn't try to engage with her, which just made Carla win this whole fight. There's barely any punches even thrown the first two rounds, right? So I had Rose by decision, which this fight did go to decision, which would have been a huge, nice, well, really nice plus 180 for me. And obviously subscribers to me at the odds breakers but instead she just completely dogged it all fight and the judges gave it to Carla Esparza I mean Rose did a little bit more as the aggressor than Carla did in my opinion Rose landed 37 significant strikes Carla landed 30 but Carla at least went for some takedowns You know, Carla had 22 seconds of control to Rose having 10. But just for the fact that Carla went for those 11 takedowns, only getting two, Rose got one out of them one, gives Carla the nod as the aggressor. I mean, I I disagree with that. I, I don't think Carla personally beat Rose. I think you give this fight a draw and you tell them, look, both of you guys didn't do anything this fight. You Neither of you deserve to win. But I also don't have a problem with the UFC giving it to Carla because so many times I've seen them default to the champ for no reason for the champ just running away the whole fight. I hate that. And for the fact that they went the opposite, burned me this time. But at the same time, Rose played to lose the fight she did not engage enough and it was extremely frustrating to watch it you know she tweeted out that she thinks she won the fight no you did not win the fight rose neither of you won the fight and for you just running away the whole time at least carla trying to take you down i'll give it to carla myself you know there's absolutely no reason you should have done that so I personally had the fight a draw, but I don't have a problem with the belt changing to Carla just because of how weak of a uh, uh, of an attempt and how terrible of a strategy that her corner gave her. Now, I would have hit her at the plus 180 if they won this, and I would have hit a parlay that I had her with Brandon Royval. So that's where it would have flipped to the black for me. But unfortunately... Uh, her effort was so bad that I had a bad weekend with that. Also with the Kentucky Derby. Getting into the Kentucky Derby, it was so close, yet so far away for me because Epicenter, 
the horse that I had 33 to 1 on from January, the horse that I had the exacta with Zandon, $15 exacta. I mean, not the biggest exacta, but definitely a lot bigger than the $2 ones, right? I mean, that would have paid a few hundred bucks at least. Um, and I would not have hit the try, but I still would have personally came out a heck of a lot more ahead with Zandon or with Epicenter winning this rather than coming up completely empty with Rich Strike at number one. Now, was I upset about the thing? I wasn't upset that Rich Strike won. Massive favorite. I mean, it just shows you how much it pays, right? <laughs> I mean, the exact, it was like into the, was it in the thousands, I believe, with Rich Strike over Epicenter, even though the favorite or one of the co-favorites took second. It was absolutely crazy. The $2 exacta paid $4,000, $4,100, okay? And the 50% or the fifty cent trifecta paid $7,435. You know, we, we do, our minimum was a dollar that we played on the trifecta. So, I mean, saying we had the right one, we would have hit 14 grand on that. Uh, don't even want to talk about the superfecta. That'll make you sick. But the problem that I had that was disappointing is that there was absolutely no way to predict that Rich Strike was winning this race. You know, um, we found out the weather was fine, right? It wasn't going to be the, the beginning, you know, the top horses, one through 10, one through 12, would kind of get into it in a mudslinging contest, and maybe that would help the horse lying out on the outside. It wasn't anything like that. It was the fact that Rich Strike was such a fluke that he was going off at 80 to 1 himself. And there was no buyer speed figure that even came close to what he ran. This horse didn't even place all year and was a scratch and just found out he was in the Derby on Friday. Okay. So that's the frustrating part, the lack of predictability in the whole thing. That's, that's what really gets you when it comes to betting an event or a sport in the future, right? At least when I lose in the NFL, I can say, well, you know, bad officiating or I missed this. They, the running backs were and running game was way better than I thought. And uh, it, the situation kind of laid itself out. I can explain this win, right? Th this, this team was in a letdown spot. It was a flat spot for them. You know, they were kind of looking ahead. There, there's so many ways that you can see why something won. But for the life of me, I cannot tell you why Rich Strike won, and I don't think it was predictable at all. And that's what makes it very frustrating. The next thing that makes it extremely frustrating is horse racing has had a bad name with doping over the past, what, 10 years or more. And Bob Baffert's one of those reasons, and he was suspended from this race. And guess what happened to his two favorites? Well, I'll tell you. Messier took 15th and Taba took 12th. Taba became the co-favorite for how it looked in the Santa Anita and went all the way from 12 to 1 to 5 to 1, shared with Epicenter, just to not even get in the top 10. Can you believe that? A Baffert horse not in the top 10. 10 you know everybody said they'd be mad if a Baffert horse won but maybe it even looks Baffert look worse now that his horses 
were most likely clean and couldn't even finish in the top 10. You know, think about it that way. You know, Baffert, you know, you can say Tim Yachting, the trainer, isn't Bob Baffert, but still, these were Baffert horses rode by the professional jockeys, Mike Smith, and they couldn't even finish in the top 10. And this definitely does not help the whole doping cause for Bob Baffert, right? It's not like you this sample size you can for sure say, hey, you know, um, Baffert is definitely doping a ton of races because his are always finishing first and these just happen to not finish in the top 10. Obviously, the sample size is so small, but it sure as heck doesn't help his cause here, right? Not even in the top 10, his horses. Absolutely amazing. So the fact that Rich Strike won makes you have to question the whole doping thing again because of the trainers that screwed it up for everybody, like Baffert, right? Rich Strike comes from absolutely nowhere, completely unpredictable in this situation. One, did he have a perfect path on the rail? It was a, it was a gaping hole. It was amazing. But Epicenter was riding the front. Zandon, which was supposed to be the closer, was riding second. You know, if these horses were handicapped anything like they've been doing all year, there's no way that Rich Strike should have came across them. Epicenter had a great trip, right? A great trip. Zandon had a perfect trip for a closer. Neither of them could outride Rich Strike for some reason. And now you have to wonder about it, and I'm not sure when the tests come through. I'm sure a lot of tests don't really show what happened at the same time, but it sure bogs you down for betting a sport in the future because of them allowing so much crap to go through with the doping. Big mistake, I think, for horse racing. Somehow my NBA has been doing extremely well, at least. <laughs> you know, That's kind of what's been carrying me. Um, I am in the black this year for NBA, and maybe part of that reason is because I didn't bet them during the regular season. I didn't bet much NBA, maybe like four or five plays throughout the whole regular season, focusing on college basketball. But I just believe personally, to me anyway, I'm not a good handicapper for the NBA because of all the unpredictability of what happens. And some people that are good NBA handicappers, the Chris Farley's, uh, Nick, plenty of other people on this site that can predict handicapping, uh, predict or handicap the NBA, do a great job at it. I, it's something that I can't figure out daily when a team could possibly let down, when um, they might be sitting somebody. It's a lot to follow, and I'd rather personally concentrate on college basketball because anything I do other than college basketball detracts from that. And I also attest that to my great march that I had in college basketball. So uh, I'm going to keep doing the same thing. Not going to be focused on NBA until playoff time. And hopefully this good streak keeps going in the NBA because the baseball I have, have not started well either. I am in the red for baseball, similar to kind of what happened last year. And obviously at the end, July, August was good for me in baseball kind of hoping it turn, I can turn this thing around in baseball as well. But at least in baseball, my unit size is a lot smaller than it has been in the past, with the NBA being probably, on average, twice the size. All right, let's get into a little college football then. Quick 
preview of some of the returning production and transfer portal. This is just going to be a very high-level glance at what's going on. Nothing concrete by any means. Just want to give you guys some ideas of where my thoughts are initially on some of these teams. So starting from the top, I want to talk about Bill Conley's returning production numbers. And he does these early in the year, February 8th, 2022. This came out and this is going to change with the transfer portal. And I do believe Bill Conley will update this later, but I want to go over the top 10 returning production teams that return the most talent to their squad and I'm going to talk about the bottom 10 and just tell you how we should look at this situation. Number one is Bowling Green, believe it or not. They return 92% of their production, 95% on offense and 88% on defense. It's actually the number one by far. Now, it's Bowling Green, right? So you think like, oh, well, it's just a a bad team returning bad players. That's how I've kind of looked at them over the past two or three years. But that could change a little bit. The reason that is is that Scott Lofer, their coach, is going into his fourth season. It's do or die for him most likely. But this Bowling Green team won four games last year. They went over their season win total. They somehow beat – you remember when they beat Minnesota? I mean, Minnesota certainly snapped into it after that loss. But, I mean, still, that that was a fantastic um, win for Bowling Green. And then uh, Bowling Green goes to loses to Kent State, which wasn't a bad team. They were a very good team. And they're, I think they won the MAC last year, didn't they? Um, no, they lost to Northern Illinois there in the MAC championship game. So, I mean, that's pretty good loss there. Lost to Akron, which was bad, 35-20. to 20. But, you know, then their next loss to Northern Illinois was eight-point loss. Bad loss to Eastern Michigan. But they beat Buffalo. They went to Buffalo and beat them. That was interesting, 56-44. to Lost by Toledo in that letdown spot by a lot, by like 30 points. And then they lost to Miami, Ohio. But their very last game, they beat the Ohio Bobcats. Now, Ohio was... Not a good team last year, but still, losing to Bowling Green like that, last game of the season. The way I want to look at Bowling Green is not necessarily winning the MAC, but they might be able to kind of hold on and might be that one team that tries to make a bowl game if they can run off enough wins against some some bad teams in the MAC. There's a lot of bad teams in the MAC. Uh, the MAC has a lot of people that go in the transfer portal. So I'm just going to kind of keep my eye on Bowling Green. I'm not saying I'm high on them for being the number one returning production, but it's really of interest to me because maybe this could be that sneaky team. And when I do more research on who they returned, I'm going to have a better idea of what they're going to do. Number two, BYU, 88% of their production returns 80% 80% on offense, 97% on defense. BYU, a team that had a very tough schedule, yet they did pretty well. Obviously, with the Zach Wilson team, they were much better during the COVID year. 
But you got to give them a lot of props last year for only losing to Boise State, Baylor, and UAB. <laughs> you know, so uh, they're going to be a team that is going to benefit from great returning production because their seniors stay; they don't go to the NFL early. And their recruits are never like four or five stars. So this benefits a team to have great return in production when you're a team like BYU. So uh, I'm going to be pretty high on BYU so far. The next one, Stanford. (laughs) 88% again, 94% on offense, 82% on defense. Fantastic numbers. Uh, Yes, Stanford uh, should hopefully make some noise. I'm guessing... David Shaw will be on the hot seat. You know, this might give uh, the Cardinal a little bit of a boost just playing for their coach. You know, I I do believe he's a very likable coach, a players-type coach, but this team was horrible last year. If you remember, they lost their last seven games in a row, but they're also very injured. So I'm going to be lukewarm on their returning production here. Being that they're Stanford, they've had – a very great reputation over the past 15, 20 years in football. So I'll give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt, but I'm not exactly running to the window to back them without knowing more information. Next team is South, sorry, UMass is the next team. And they return 86% of their production, 89% on offense, 84% on defense. I, my opinion on UMass is terrible. Um, they were beaten by an average of 27 points last year. 27 on average. And that's having kind of a bad schedule, okay? So, um, yeah, UMass returning a lot of production is a bad thing, in my opinion, just because of how bad they were this year. At least Bowling Green, their average margin was about 9 points. Uh, 27 points. I do not want any of those players back for me in general. The next one is South Florida, returning 86% of their production, 88% on offense, 84% on defense. USF is another team that I do not like. They're high returning production. Part of the reason is that, well, A, obviously they only had two wins last year. They lost by an average margin of 11.8. Five points, but lots of their recruits over the past three or four years have been choosing Central Florida. Actually, probably the maybe five to seven years, right? Central Florida's kind of went up a lot higher, and UCF has really taken the brunt of that. Uh, I do not like the fact that returning so many guys that have been beating them up so bad or getting them beat so bad, I should say. So I'm not really high on UCF's or you sorry USF's uh returning production here for South Florida. Georgia Southern 85% ranking third on offense at 92%, 27 on defense at 78%. Georgia Southern the option team is no longer an option team. That is a massive change of philosophy. Clay Helton the USC coach that everybody loved to hate over the past eight years or how many years he's been there is now their coach. And you cannot trust this Georgia Southern team to do anything this year. 
especially based on the big changes that they're going through. Is Clay Helton maybe just a bad power five coach and he'd still be a good group of five coach? Nah, I, I don't even know if I would go that far. But what I do know is that Georgia Southern's first game might be Fade City for me. You suck! Next team, we have at number seven, Southern Miss. Now, this was another awful team last year. They only had one win coming into November 19th, and they beat Louisiana Tech, who was terrible, and Florida International, who was bad. I guess something for the the kids to kind of like build on from last year, but they're switching conferences, and I never loved that. So it's more of a Luke Cold, let's say, for me and my outlook on Southern Miss moving over to the Sun Belt. Next one, Northern Illinois, 83% returning production, 84% on offense, and 81% on defense. I like that for Northern Illinois, and this team destroyed me last year. I came in completely wrong about this team, and they ended up winning the MAC and beating Kent State. I could not freaking believe it. They lost to Coastal Carolina in a tough fought bowl game, 41 to 47. Tommy Hammock really, really surprised me last year, and he's moved up in my coaching tree, um, up the trunk a little bit to the first limb at least. Uh, I'm very impressed by what he did, and I also believe that Rocky Lombardi has another year of eligibility, so he's going to be playing as well, like in Northern Illinois here and what they're doing. Next one, we have TCU, and they finally got rid of their coach Patterson, Gary Patterson, who was an amazing coach last year. Not Sorry, not last year, the last 10 years in general for TCU. Hell, they won that Rose Bowl against my Badgers. Ugh, bad memory right there. <laughs> but, uh, it, it's just amazing how uh, they finally part ways. And Sonny Dykes, the coach of SMU, comes in, and he's done a great job over at SMU. So um, not loving the first year here, head coach. I think that it's it's boomer bust and it's more leans towards the bust because you always get that honeymoon that first year. So not sure about the sense of urgency here. And they do re- they do have some talent that they're returning, but they also lost some guys to the transfer portable Evans the running back. So we'll we'll be uh a little bit Luke Cold, let's say, on TCU. And finally, the number ten, the Kansas. Jayhawks return 82% of their production, ranking 38th on offense at 75%, 89% on defense at uh, ranking third. This is interesting to me because I really like Lance Leopold, and I think he's a great coach, and people are going to be sleeping on this team. And why wouldn't you? Look at how bad Kansas has been at football over the past forever, let's say. But Lance Leopold did amazing things at Buffalo, and he resurrected that program. I think there's a very good chance that Leopold resurrects Kansas somewhat, at least make them respectable here. And they have some massive upside. I think the ceiling is quite high on this Kansas team. The floor still might be somewhat low, 
but they're just going to be so interesting coming in with a good amount of returning production. Let's see if Leopold can actually put something get together here. All right. Well, that's the top 10 and my quick thoughts about that. Let's move down to the bottom 10 in returning production. Nevada ranking 27 percent 131 on offense 129 on defense this team won it last year uh carson strong was fantastic but they lose everybody this is bad for nevada it's bad because it's it's like a honeymoon year for them after winning it all and they lose everybody hmm. <laughs> not a good not a good situation because this is not a good recruiting team you know compared to obviously the bigger schools bad on that nevada also keep in mind that uh, Nevada, is it's well known how much they lost. So maybe the naysayers like myself overcompensates. I'm not the only one that's going to be thinking this on Nevada. And there still could be value that comes in on them if uh, they're downgraded or over downgraded, let's say. This happens with obvious information like this. So when I say I'm not high on them, it doesn't mean that they might not be good against the spread the first game or two. Uh, as well so always keep the market in mind and what they're thinking you know this is we're not looking for obvious things when we're handicapping college football in the beginning of the season next one is hawaii returned 33 percent of their production 33 percent on offense and defense right across the board this team had todd graham resign they hired a new head coach in um timmy chang I can't be high in Hawaii here. Honeymoon year, new regime, new faces, not a good recruiting school. Hawaii is probably a fade city for me. The next one is Coastal Carolina losing 36% production, 43% on offense, 30% on defense. This is not good for Coastal Carolina. They relied on some big players, likely was drafted. Uh, they're a great tight end. But the good news is Grayson McCall is still playing, and he's a very smart kid. So you got to keep that in mind. I don't think people are going to fade this team. So I'm very medium on Coastal Carolina and see what McCall and Jamie Chadwell, their great coach, is going to do. So very interested to see what happens with Coastal Carolina. The next team we see here was very high in the returning production the past couple of years, but finally lose everybody. Iowa State. 40% returning production, 37% on offense, 43% on defense. I mean, Matt Campbell has done everything he could to make this team good. This was the most disappointing team last year because their numbers were absolutely insane from an EPA. Well, mostly from a yards per play, right, expected, right? You, you figure they should be putting up a lot more points or winning a lot more games. A lot of flukes happen them, to them. Uh, when you look at their advanced metrics, they should have been a lot better. And they weren't because, uh, you know, there'd be some stupid fumbles, screw up on special teams here and there. That, that first Iowa game was extremely disappointing for them, one of our nice big wins earlier last season, if you remember. But now you have Matt Campbell returning nobody. Uh, so how much faith are you going to put in Matt Campbell? I've soured slightly on Matt Campbell. Probably not in my top five anymore. Uh, he was in people's top five for a while now. But they just cannot win the big games. Um, now playing with new kids, you, you have to wonder how good they're going to be. They also lost a big tight end uh, to the NFL draft this year. The next one is Ball State. 
uh, ranking 127th in returning production, 46% on offense, 37% on defense. Pretty sure that Ball State isn't exactly a heavy recruiting school. I also find it interesting how great they did in 2020 and how bad they were in 2021 compared to their previous season. They uh, barely limped into a bowl game. <laughs> I mean, then got crushed by Georgia State, 51-20. to 20. This is bad for Ball State. I think this is going to be a fade team for me. This is the uh, MAC team I think that could turn into like the Bowling Green and the Akron of 2022. The next team is Louisiana, and Billy Napier did such an amazing job with this program that he got the Florida head coach here. And uh, you wonder if they're kind of in line to compete with the LSU's with Brian Kelly over there, the two big new head coaches in the SEC. Man, I I, I hate how much Louisiana lo- loses here. They're such a good team and losing their head coach and that much production, only returning 48% of their production, 43 on offense, 53 on defense. I, I have to be down on them slightly. I don't know how down because they are hiring a guy that learned from Napier and Michael DeSormo. Um, so maybe there's some continuity there and I, I just, I just don't know how much I can put into it. Very, very unknown for me, lean to fade. So I would say Luke cold on, uh, Louisiana right now. We'll see how they bounce back. Next one is Duke 48% returning production, 44th percent, 44% on offense, 52% excuse me, I got hiccups, on defense. Yeah, Duke finally lost their head coach. David Cutcliffe, the uh, quarterback whisperer, had it for 14 years, but they are just so bad over the past couple years. Mike Elko will be uh, hired as head coach. So he was the defensive coordinator at Texas A&M. And I have to assume he's going to love running the football and slowing games down. He's, he doesn't have a lot to work with, and this is a honeymoon year. But I do think that the under might be a good play maybe early with this program uh, coming in here. I, you know, people bet the overs on Duke last year. You wonder how quickly the public's going to catch on to that. So, um, I mean, definitely not high on them with Mike Elko. But I, I think it'd be better to look toward the totals and maybe look towards the unders for their first few games. Okay, the ninth worst returning production is Western Michigan, returning 49%, 27% on offense. That ranks 130th. or the second worst in returning offense behind Nevada. And 70% on defense, ranking 50th. Don't like this whatsoever. Western Michigan was a big failure last year, a team that I was on, that lost on. I thought that I thought they were going to show some of those flashes from 2020, but that COVID year kind of proved to be a fluke. They at least did beat Nevada in their bowl game. Nevada didn't have a ton to play for, obviously, 52-24. to 24. But uh, this team was still, you know, outscored by some really bad teams central michigan beat them 42 to 30 toledo 34 to 15 um somehow they lost to ball state 45 to 20 
But they also have some really weird wins last year. Pittsburgh, 44 to 41. They beat Kenny Pickett's Pittsburgh. You know, some very strange wins as well for this team. You know, losing a lot when you're the MAC team, I have to be cold on you. I'm just going to say I'm Luke Cole on this team until I dig into some more information. And finally, Virginia ranking 51% in returning production, 59% on offense, 42% on defense. Bronco Mendenhall obviously fired after coaching many years at Virginia. God, when did he start there? 2016, so five good years. He was at BYU before that. And he was a defensive coordinator for a while at BYU, too. So you wonder why this defense was so bad over the last few years. I mean, Virginia was just a weird team. They ended up having a really good offense, though. And I just don't like the change. I don't. I don't like the the philosophy change. Tony Elliott is coming in, who spent 10 years at Clemson, which you would think is really good. But let's face it, he became offensive coordinator this past season and Clemson's offense was absolutely terrible this past season. So, you know, he kind of just was gifted this job here just for his experience at Clemson. I don't like the hire. I don't think it gels. And I think they're just hiring because of the name Clemson. I think this is a bad move. I'm going to be low on the Virginia Cavaliers this year. All right, time to talk a little transfer portal. And this is going to be a little exciting for me. I never really talked about transfer portal on the podcast but there are some very big names here and I'm going to look at an SI article to be completely honest with you that kind of told me some of the top teams that got some players I'm not going to rank them but I'm going to start with Nebraska Uh, they got quarterback Casey Thompson from Texas he was the starting quarterback last year Um, and they also got a couple TCU guys, uh, Mathis is a uh, defensive end and decided to uh, go to Nebraska. I think Nebraska could be a very dangerous team, being that they have Mark Whipple running the show here. They're kind of my sleeper for the Big Ten West. Um, I hate to say that as a Badger fan, but I'm concerned with a lot of the players that the Badgers did lose this year. Kind of a do-or-die situation with Scott Frost, you would think. Although he still keeps getting contracts there. I don't know. I don't know how he's lasted so long, but they must really like him because he's a former uh, Nebraska quarterback there himself. Miami's the next team with Mario Cristobal, obviously now coaching. Added a couple guys from Oregon, a couple offensive linemen, and they also got a former Ole Miss back in Henry Parrish, Clemson receiver D. Wiggins. Not T. Higgins, D. Wiggins. Very interesting name like that. But uh, they also got a West Virginia starter in um, Akeem Mesador. He was a defensive lineman. So they did pretty well, obviously, with Cristobal coming in. UCLA did well. They got wide receiver Jake Bobo. And he can't comes in from Duke. And they also... Got a few pass rushing guys from Oregon as well as a couple cornerbacks. So that's interesting. I think uh, uh, Chip Kelly making a small amount of noise. South Carolina is a big one because they got quarterback Spencer Rattler from Oklahoma. Now, 
I didn't think Rattler was as bad as the criticism he, that he received. Did he fail in some big spots? Yeah, but he also made some big plays in a few big spots as well. So it's interesting with uh, South Carolina. They also got some guys from Oklahoma in uh, tight end Austin Stogner. Uh, probably going with Rattler, right? And a couple recruits f- from Oklahoma as well. It's kind of like they poached a few guys from Oklahoma. So it at least makes South Carolina a little interesting coming into the season. Oh, uh, Antoine Wells. It looks like uh, he played for James Madison. He, 1,250 yards, 15 TDs a year ago. And, you know, James Madison just moved into the Sun Belt from Division Two. So I found that interesting um, going to the big time with South Carolina. So pretty interesting moves with them. Now, obviously, with the Sooners, uh, they lost a lot of guys, and they're getting a lot of guys. They're getting quarterback Dylan Gabriel from UCF. Um, I, I, I really lost faith in Dylan Gabriel last year. I never thought he was a Mackenzie Milton. Um, he was kind of a stopgap for that, but at the same time, I don't know what to expect from Oklahoma. And that's simply because they hired Brett Venables, a defensive coach from Clemson, their defensive coordinator finally left and, uh, Venables comes in probably a little more focused on the defense than offensive coordinators uh, Jeff Lebby in his new position coming from Ole Miss. I mean, if he gels right away from what he learned from Lane Kiffin, then that's great, right? I mean, that's awesome. He he would be uh, fantastic, and Oklahoma would be a buy-in team. I don't know if I'm going to be on or off Oklahoma. It's almost like I, I think the public's going to want to fade them some, but they could be sneaky good just because they still are Oklahoma and they still get a lot of great names. So uh, interested to do more research on Oklahoma. The next one we have is Texas, who is getting Quinn Ewers. Obviously, uh, Ewers was more of a redshirt freshman. He was a five-star talent. Originally went to Texas, and then he switched to Ohio State and then realized he's not beating C.J. Stroud, so goes back to Texas. But at least Texas has a great offensive mind there now. It's Sarkeesian. So, um, you know, Texas obviously is going to get some transfers from Alabama um, and some other big schools that, you know, probably some four-star guys that realize they're not the best, but maybe they're quiet and they want to start somewhere. So Texas is definitely a big school for transfers. Alabama is the next one and they're getting a nice running back name, uh, Jamire Gibbs and Gibbs was a very good and physical running back last year. He was someone that shined at Georgia tech really. And Georgia Tech was very interesting last year. They they won some big games and lost some bad ones, but uh, Gibbs is going to be interesting coming into Alabama here. And you have to also understand that Alabama is going to poach some really good guys from a lot of other teams, and there's no bigger transfer and wide receiver than Jermaine Burton from Georgia, right? SEC east rival with alabama who just played against each other in the championship jermaine burton transfers to alabama caused a big stir when he did that now uh, he was georgia's uh leading receiver on the national title team 
And I, I just don't understand. Well, I do understand why Burton did it. I, I, I think it's sad that Georgia fans have to lose a guy to uh, when they're, you're Georgia to Alabama like that. It's kind of weird for the sport, but at the same time, he's probably getting some image and likeness money that's pretty big, and he's going to a team that has a better offense, more of a passing-style offense when Georgia's more of a pound-it-down-your-throat you know, uh, play defense-type uh, situation so Jermaine Burton is probably thinking about his draft Bama also got Eli Ricks from LSU a nice uh cornerback that um was uh injured last year the next team is LSU and they actually were bad last year but they obviously hired Brian Kelly from Notre Dame (laughs) jump ship after saying he wasn't going to but LSU got a ton of talent coming in um and kelly was aggressive in the transfer portal Jaden daniels from arizona state is the big name at quarterback you know coming in he'll be competing of course mckay wingo is going to the defensive line they got a big corner in jarek bernard from oklahoma state and he's going to fit right in as well so lsu always doing well in the transfer portal, even with the new coaching change. Well, I think that helped the transfer portal this year, actually. USC, I'm sorry, Ole Miss is the next team getting a guy from USC. Quarterback Jackson Dart, and you he was a five-star recruit over at USC, and they also got a couple, well, at least one player from TCU, in running back Zach Evans, I believe he was a four or five star recruit as well. Um, ten touchdowns last two years over from TCU, and TCU was a bad team, but it certainly helps uh, Lane Kiffin's offense now. I wonder if he can make Jackson Dart something that USC couldn't with Clay Helton. And actually, another team that we have to talk about, the other team, is USC getting quarterback Caleb Williams from Oklahoma and. The elephant in the room, Lincoln Riley, who some people have said is the best fo- football coach next to Nick Saban. I'm yeah, I'm not sure if I'm there yet. I'm <laughs> maybe in the top five, Lincoln Riley, right? Caleb Williams comes in after doing very well at Oklahoma his freshman year. They're also getting former Sooner wideout Mario Williams, Oregon uh, rusher Travis Dye, uh, Jerry Rice's son, Brendan Rice, steps in at receiver. Um, there's just a lot of transfers they're getting from all over the place that want to play for Lincoln Riley. We'll see if this defense holds up. I'm not even sure if this offense is going to be that great right away. I, I'm not going to be high on Lincoln Riley right away. I, mean, I, I have to see a prove it button before I put some money on this team, unless for some reason that the spread was way off from my power ratings. But this is kind of a preview of what... I've looked into a little bit so far in college football, and uh, the job has just started. It's going to be all through the summer. I'm very excited to uh, get into more college football on some of these podcasts and talk to all you guys about what I learned, and maybe you guys can share some of your stuff with me as well. All right. Now it is time for a little UFC on ESPN 36. And the main event is Alexander Rakic versus John Lakovich. <laughs> Very interesting 
which itch last type names. So obviously John was the champion and he just lost his to Glover Teixeira. And it was one of those where I, I think I was on John and lost. And then after the fight, I was just like, man, I could not believe he couldn't prepare for Teixeira, who is like 42 years old, been there forever. Obviously, the next UFC event on June 11th, UFC 275 is where Teixeira is going to be fighting Yuri Prokatska for the title. I can't wait for that. But, you know, stepping back down here, this might be the next two best guys in Blakovich and Rakic. You know, Magomed Ankalaev is lurking. Anthony Smith is awesome. Tiago Santos is good. Obviously, we can go down to Paul Craig, Dominic Reyes. But, I mean, this is still going to be a fantastic main event. The thing is, is that Rakic is the favorite. And the reason is Rakic has just been smoking everybody in this division minus a one hiccup that he actually recently had losing a split decision against Vulcan Uzdemir. Now, you can argue whichever way you want for that, but, I mean, Rakic is a very deserving top four guy. He beat Anthony Smith in August of 2020, and then he beat Tiago Santos um, in uh, March of 2021, but he hasn't fought in over a year now. A little bit of ring rust there. Jean obviously lost his title um, and is nine years older than Rakic. That's the thing. He's older. Now, the big thing that people are remembering, um, and Jean, when he was the champ, when he beat, uh, I believe it was Dominic Reyes, when he, I think that's how he got the belt, he beat Israel Adesanya. You know, he beat Israel Adesanya, and Adesanya is one of the most, well, probably the best technical fighter in the UFC, but Adesanya had to go up in weight by a lot, right? Big weight difference between 205 and 185, right? Light heavyweight is much different than middleweight. And Izzy just could not get off the ground. That's how he lost the fight. It was just, he was on his back and just couldn't squirm out like he did when he fought Vittori. So that's the big difference here is Jean's getting love for that. But to be honest with you, I thought Jean was, I, I love the comeback he made, but he was a little bit overpriced. He lost to Tiago Santos not that long ago in 2019. Beat a couple bums, Rockholds. I guess Ronaldo Sousa is pretty good, but that was a split decision. Um, Corey Anderson, big deal. Then he got Reyes, right? Um, and then he lost fair and square to Glover Teixeira. Well, Glover Teixeira is a wrestler himself, so he took out John. John had no business fighting him. Now, Alexander Rakic, he's a striker. Nine KOs, one submission, four decisions. His last two fights did go to decision, but they're against some very good uh, people in Anthony Smith, right? Anthony Smith, top five, top six. Tiago Santos, top six, top seven, right? 
So, you know, you got to give it up to Rakic. And then before that, Rakic knocked out some pretty big guys like Devin Clark. We just saw Devin Clark fight. He got knocked out in the first. And Jimmy Manua uh, got knocked out head kick. I remember that fight back in June of 2019. That was a fantastic fight by Rakic. So, you know, looking at this, Rakic is just the hungrier and the younger one. And John is kind of coming in. Maybe he wants his belt back. But I'm just not sure if John could uh, go round for round with Rakic. Looking at the numbers, um, Rakic definitely is better at striking. Uh, 4.23 significant strikes, 3.59. Rakic, 66.8% accuracy to 57%. Now, obviously, John, a little bit better at the takedowns, 1.14 to 0.75. But that doesn't mean that Rakic can't fight on the ground. Because Rakic has fought some guys that can wrestle like Anthony Smith, right? So he kind of proved it a little bit with some of the guys he fought. I mean, Tiago Santos is uh, mainly a striker, but one of his earlier fights against Barroso, Brazilian jiu-jitsu, is a grappler, and he beat him uh, pretty easily, I believe, sprawling and out striking him to get the decision. So I'm going to lean uh, Rakic, even though Rakic is the favorite here. It's not like you're paying a massive price. You know, I, I wish that you're getting more of an even price just because of John's previous success, but the market is telling you, hey, John is not the proper favorite here, and uh, I'm going to respect that. One fight that I do like for sure that I'm going to be putting a play on is uh, Manuel Roberto Torres versus Frank Camacho. Uh, Torres kind of up and coming here, uh, younger guy, 27 years old. This is the featherweight class, 145, and he's 5'9", um, 12 and 2, won his last three fights, but hasn't fought in the UFC. Well, Frank Camacho has UFC experience, lots of UFC experience, probably about seven, eight fights worth of UFC. Now he, since 2017, since he's been in the UFC, he's won two fights and lost uh, five. <laughs> so uh, it's not like he's a great fighter, but he lost to some really good guys. Drew Dobery went to the decision with. Jeff Neal out with a head kick. Benil Darius, right? Um, can't explain the Justin Janes one, his recent one. But if you look at his fights since the Drew Dober fight, he hasn't even went into the third round. And this is kind of where I'm getting at. Uh, I think he's definitely got a shot against Torres, who doesn't have the experience. But Torres, out of his 14 fights, has only been to decision once. As a matter of fact, his last one, two, three, four, five, six, seven fights haven't even left the first round. You know, he he didn't even get past two minutes and 10 seconds since uh, 2018. And so uh, I know these are a lot lower federations here the uh the uwc you know chf the club hardcore fighter it's just that i don't think that he likes to get to the second round here and he kind of gets a little bit more aggressive 
Well, when fighters get aggressive, they either knock somebody out, submit them, or they get knocked out themselves. And Camacho, with his uh, history of 17 KOs, two submissions, and only three decisions, really puts him as a factor of getting beat or winning fast. So you got experience who lost a lot in the UFC, lost in the first and second rounds a lot against inexperience who's beaten their opponents a lot in the first round i like the under and it's at plus money at plus 115 i don't know why it's at plus money if i was if i was handicapping this i would have it uh probably minus 150 under one and a half looking at what these two guys have done but i'm guessing maybe their lighter weight has pushed it over the uh plus 100 into plus 115 for the under so that's what we're going to go with for one Point five stars. We're going to take the under uh, 1.5 rounds for Torres versus Camacho. Well, I've been with the best, and I beat the best. I've retired more men than Social Security. <laughs> All right, my friends. That's the two fights I wanted to discuss today. Should you have any questions about any other fights that I'll be handicapping for premium subscribers, feel free to tweet us at the odds breakers everybody i hope you enjoy your weekend enjoy all the nba the mlb the fights and go get some winners